On one level, it's now hard to imagine a world without provincializing Europe. On another level, I'm sure you'll agree, it's quite astonishing that 10 years have actually passed since we first encountered its brooding burgundy aspect. <laughs> Second, um, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the generosity of our sponsors here at the university. Uh, COSAS, that is the Committee on Southern Asian Studies, uh, 3CT, otherwise known as the Chicago Center for Contemporary Theory, the Frankie Institute for the Humanities, um, and the Nicholson Center. So uh, each of them pitched in with both alacrity and enthusiasm, so thank you. Again, on behalf of Leela and myself, I would have to say that our roles as conveners uh, was made, uh, were made absurdly painless uh, by the real brains behind this operation, uh, which is our uh, conference coordinator, Dwight Bayan Sen, over here, who was ably assisted by Brian Ashby and uh, Michael Burt. Uh, and I'm sure you'll agree that they more than deserve the first big hand of the day, so I'd like to thank you. So we have an exciting day of presentations uh, and conversations ahead of us, but I'd like to offer just a few more uh, personally inflected words of appreciation uh, for the ethos of Depeche's work, now that I've been lucky enough to count him as a colleague and a friend here in Chicago uh, for, for almost a decade. This is a professional environment in which there's no shortage of excellence and an abundance of professionalism, that is to say, a kind of sharply honed technical skill in scholarship and teaching. But sometimes this professionalism uh, can degenerate into a kind of intellectual combat in which one wins points by being the last theorist standing, armored and alone on top of the hill, after everyone else's errors and vulnerabilities have been exposed and attacked. Now, Depeche, it seems to me, has always refused to engage in this kind of defensive armoring. And this is one of the great strengths of his writing and his discourse, that it resists this oppositional rigidity, that it begins with an openness to being changed and transformed as it travels. This is also why engagement with Depeche's work is less likely to produce acolytes or followers than it is to provoke conversation and to nourish an intellectual community of friends. And your collective presence in this room here today is, I think, the most concrete testimony to that. Early on, as we were beginning to plan this conference, Depeche said to Leela and myself, listen, I really don't want this to become some kind of solemn celebration of provincializing Europe. I'm much more interested in hearing about what kinds of work and thoughts it may have played a role in provoking. It seems to me that he needn't have worried. The very ethos of his work pretty much precludes that kind of pious and sycophantic genuflection. By now, it'll be obvious to you that, I, that the ethos I see embodied in Depeche's work and conversation is, in a sense, the ethos of the Adda. And that is how we have imagined this day an Adda in which we can reflect together on the paths that our encounters which provi with provincializing Europe have prompted us to travel. So we're tremendously privileged to have as our keynote speaker, Professor Carlo Ginsberg. And in order to introduce him, I'd like to hand over the podium to Professor David Nirenberg, uh, the Deborah R. and Edgar D. Janotta Professor of Medieval History and Social Thought here at the University of Chicago. It's a great honor 
for me to be able to introduce you to, to you, Carlo Ginsberg. A great honor and also a great relief, for I was almost the cause of his not being here today. Some 15 years ago, when Professor Ginsberg lectured at Rice University in Houston, I was asked to take him to the Houston Museum of Fine Arts and the de Menil Collection. Now, those of you who have read his work on medieval and Renaissance art, for which he was awarded the Abbey Warburg Prize in 1992, know what an opportunity this was for me to walk through a gallery with Cardo Ginsberg is like having your eyes turn from wood to flesh. In fact, so much was my vision altered that when we left the de Menil parking lot, I started driving the wrong way down a six-lane avenue. <laughs> I don't think you even noticed, <laughs> but your life was at risk. <laughs> now, fortunately, my error became apparent, and Professor Ginsberg will speak to us today. But the lesson is a good one. Hearing and reading Carlo Ginsberg is absorbing. Please drive carefully when you go home today. <laughs> so there is honor and relief in introducing Carlo Ginsberg, but there is also trepidation, for it is very difficult to grasp simultaneously both the range and the precision of his thought, let alone reduce that thought to the hackneyed nouns and adjectives that characterize introductions as a genre. I'm reminded of the problem described by Aristotle in his Poetics, when he tells us that beauty consists in amplitude as well as order. A very small creature, he explains, cannot be beautiful no matter how harmoniously arranged since our view loses all distinctness, but an enormously ample one can't be beautiful either, since we lose a sense of its unity and wholeness. Could we perceive, he asks, the beauty of an animal a thousand miles long? It's but one symptom of the immensity of our lecturer's achievements that he confounds Aristotle's taxonomy. He's at once and the same time an animal a thousand miles long and a tiny harmonious creature. He is celebrated as a founder of microhistory because of the, questions, of the questions he can ask of a single obscure Miller, or I should say formerly obscure, because who has today not heard of Minocchio? Yet simultaneously, his work demands of us that we make our way from Proust to the pre-Socratics and back again, with all kinds of surprises in between. And never in reading his work do we lose a sense of its distinctness or its unity nor have any difficulty perceiving its beauty. On the contrary, it's our sense of the world and of its scale that emerges profoundly altered. Now, this is just as true of his earliest work as of his most recent. Already in Ibn Adanti in 1966, translated into English as The Night Battles, he famously revealed a cosmos in a handful of Inquisition dossiers. And in the process, he also took up the most basic philosophical questions that confront us not only as historians, but also as thinking beings, questions about what kind of knowledge of the world, past and present, language and representation can offer us. Already in that early work, it was his goal, as he wrote a decade ago, to quote, to demonstrate that the old text, what is outside the text, is also in the text, nestling in its folds. We have to discover it, make it talk, end quote. This sentence alone, with its conscious reformulation, not to say refutation, of Derrida's famous dictum, should remind us of the 
enormous epistemological stakes in Carlo Ginzburg's writing. Those epistemological stakes differ from work to work, depending on whether he is writing about Picasso's Guernica, English literature in world perspective, or the relationship between the ways of knowing of inquisitors, judges, and historians, to cite just a few topics from the last decade of his work. But whatever he is writing about, his research always defamiliarizes what we thought we knew, while at the same time affirming the possibility of knowing. I'll mention only one example, since I've already brought up Aristotle, and that is his brief essay, Aristotle and History Once More, in which he takes up Aristotle's famous claim in the poetics that poetry is something more serious and more scientific than history. It says something about his ability to work in many fields that I first learned of this article from a ferociously philological, not to say pedantic, specialist in Parmenides and the Pre-Socratics, who was utterly uninterested in the article's implications for history or historians, but terrifically excited by its contribution to our understanding of the technical meaning of the words enthymeme and syllogism. We might call this the micro of the essay, but these brief 15 pages on Aristotle's philosophical vocabulary are also a thousand miles long, addressing as they do a vital question that has confronted history for the last 50 years, not to say forever, the question of its relationship to rhetoric. We emerge from the reading of this essay with a new sense of the ancient relationship between rhetoric and proof, which is also to say with a new suspicion of the antinomies that have so excited our generation of historians and a new confidence in the possibility of knowledge itself. This confidence is what Carlo Ginzburg's work is always trying to teach us, the confidence that, in his words, knowledge, even historical knowledge, is possible. In sum, our speaker seems to me the ideal person to address us on this, the 10th anniversary of Dipesh Chakrabarti's provincializing Europe. His explorations of European history defamiliarize Europe for us, helping us to see Europe as the Indies de por acá, as the Jesuits put it, the Indies of over here or of this world. He has also explored the Indies of over there, the world outside Europe, following the Jesuits to places like the Mariana Islands. And finally, he has taught us that if we wish to explore the relationship between our ideas and the world, then we must, if I may borrow words from a Spanish poet, we must each become our own Indies, tacking resolutely back and forth between estrangement from and familiarity with our own mental worlds. Carlo Ginzburg is his own Indies. And I know that you are just as eager as I am to hear what latitudes he, would he will map today as he speaks to us about provincializing the world, Europeans, Indians, and Jews, 1704. Thank you, Carlo Thank you very much, David, for this uh, more than generous, in fact, uh, nearly embarrassing introduction. Thank you. The title of my paper, Provincializing the World, is an obvious homage to Dipesh Chakrabarti's impressive book, whose 10th anniversary we are celebrating here. A homage, but in an inverted form. 
The reason is simple. As Dipesh himself pointed out with characteristic bluntness, the analytic categories on which he realized as he developed his ambitious research program are European. Quote, I too write from within this inheritance, he declared, that is, an enlightenment inheritance. The book's seemingly aggressive title points at a contradictory transition rather than a break. To move after Europe, as the title of this conference urges us, we must unfold some implications of that season from the distant past, the European conquest of the world. In the case study that follows, I will try to contribute to that unfolding. I came across the book I will speak about by chance, but not by a fluke. I was in Rome at the Bibliotheca Angelica, looking for a work which might throw some light on the meaning of the word civilization in the 18th century, a topic which has been analyzed in famous essays by Lucien Fèvre, the historian, and Emile Benveniste, the linguist. I was looking for the imposing work, seven folio volumes on religion, religions, illustrated by Bernard Picard, published in Amsterdam by Jean-Frédéric Bernard between 1723 and 1737. Ceremonie et coutume religieuse de tout le peuple du monde, translated a few years later as the ceremonies and religious customs of the various nations of the known world. Since the Bibliothèque Angelica does not have the book, I started checking the 18th century subject catalogue. In this section named Histories of Non-European Countries, I came across a title previously unknown to me. Conformité des coutumes des Indiens orientaux avec celles des Juifs et des autres peuples de l'Antiquité par Monsieur Delacque, and then three asterisks, <laughs> published in Brussels in 1704. The title immediately struck me as very promising for reasons which I began to understand only later. A quick look at the electronic catalog of UCLA's research library unveiled the name of the author, Monsieur de la Crétinière, and revealed that an English translation, today ascribed to John Toland, had been published in 1705 and reprinted several times since then, the agreement of the customs of the East Indians with those of the Jews. Sometime later, I discovered that La Crétinière's book had been included, somewhat abridged, the author's name truncated, illustrations cut, in the work I had originally meant to consult in my tentative quest for civilization, ceremonie et coutume religieuse de tout le peuple du monde. La Crétinière's name is familiar to scholars, although recently doubts have been raised about his historical existence. On the basis of new evidence, I'm able to confirm that La Crétinière was not a pseudonym, but the name of an officer who, as he claimed in his book, had spent three or four years in India at Pondicherry, the French commercial enclave. But he remains, as Sanjay Subramanian noted, a mysterious figure. He was a cultivated man with a fair knowledge of Latin and Greek literature. His antiquarian attitude emerges at the end of the introduction to his little book, 230 small pages, 
accompanied by 10 illustrations. In a passage discussing the size of a drinking measure mentioned by Quintus Curtius Rufus, the Roman historian. But beyond that, virtually nothing about him is certain. For example, La Crequinière's background is a blank. Still, curiosity compels us to ask a number of questions. Why, for example, did he commit himself to a comparison between Indian religious rituals and those found in Greek, Roman, and Jewish antiquity? Lacking biographical information, we have to look for other contexts. First of all, his title's opening word, conformity. Fifty years ago, Frank Manuel began his study of the origins of the, ori of the history of religions, the 18th century confronts the gods, with a chapter entitled Ethan Conformities, echoing La Crequinière's conformity. Manuel noted that La Crequinière had stressed the originality of his own project, but he failed to pin down where the novelty lay. The self-imposed limitations of Manuel's still very helpful work may explain this failure. In the introduction to the 18th century confronts the gods, Manuel wrote that his own project, quote, properly belongs to the history of ideas in the 18th century. It is oriented neither toward the growth of classical scholarship, nor toward the development of the science of anthropology, unquote. As it happens, La Crequinière's conformité emerged at the intersection of both, confirming Arnaldo Momigliano's suggestion that anthropology was born from antiquarianism. The history of conformity and its equivalence in different languages is long and tortuous. I'm unable to, de to deal with it here. I shall limit myself to a famous, rather remote example with which La Crequinière must have been familiar. In 1565, Henri Estienne, the great humanist and publisher, printed in Geneva his uh, Traité de la conformité du langage français avec les Grecs, treatise on the conformity between the French language and the Greek, a variation on a well-established 16th-century literary genre which traced the resemblances between a modern language and an ancient to prove the nobility of the former. One year later, Estienne unfolded the implications of comparison in his uh, Introduction au Traité de la Conformité des Merveilles Anciennes avec les Modernes, ou Traité Préparatif à l'Apologie pour Hérodote, Introduction to the Conformity of Ancient Wonders, Wonders with Modern Ones, or a preparatory treatise for an apology for Herodotus. A polemical reworking of the Apology for Herodotus he had just published, along with a Latin translation of Herodotus' histories. An ancient tradition had regarded Herodotus as a liar. Estienne defended him. Reports from travelers who had ventured across the seas had shed a new light on Herodotus' descriptions of strange customs from distant countries. He no longer seemed unreliable. Conversely, his accounts could throw an unexpected light on the world of Estienne's day. How would he, we have reacted, wrote, the, wrote Estienne, if Herodotus or some other ancient historian had mentioned, along with man-eaters, anthropophage, elephant-eaters, 
tree eaters and locust eaters, theophagi, god eaters? Would we have said that theophagy, theophagy was impossible? Yet we hear about god eaters and god shitters, theophage and theokes every day. They live among us in the same countries, the same cities, the same houses. Egyptian religion, what Egyptians labeled religion, as Tien punctiliously noted, was much more respectable. As the case of an Henri Estienne shows, conformité could work as a weapon in the religious wars between Christians. Herodotus helped to defamiliarize the Eucharist, turning the Catholic God-eaters into something worse than the idolatrous Egyptians. The comparative approach to religions emerged from this double, intertwined distance, chronological and geographical. Henri Essien's introduction au Traité de la Conformité des Merveilles Anciennes avec les Modernes must have inspired the approach to Indian rituals La Crétinière developed in his Conformité des Coutumes des Indiens Orientaux avec celle des Juifs et des autres peuples de l'Antiquité. But why this emphasis on Jews? To answer this question, we have to look in a different direction. In 1637, a book was published in Paris under the title Historia degli Riti Ebraici, dove si abreve e totale relazione di tutta la vita, costumi, riti e osservanze degli ebrei di questi tempi. History of Judaic Rituals, being a short and complete presentation of the entire life, customs, rituals and ceremonies of contemporary Jews. The author. The Venetian rabbi Leone Modena had written the book possibly 20 years before. Its publication took him by surprise. In the second edition published in Venice the following year, he suppressed a number of passages to avoid arousing the wrath of the inquisitors. Modena's autobiography is a remarkably frank account of his inner and outer life, including his uncontrollable passion for gambling with Jews and Christians alike. His history of Judaic rituals is completely different. A detached account written in the third person plural that provides its Christian audience with a detailed description of the Jews and the customs seen from a distance. Quote, I forgot to be a Jew, unquote. Modena wrote in the introduction to the second edition of his book, quote, imagining that there was a simple, neutral narrator, figurandomi semplice, neutrale relatore, unquote. We are confronted with a kind of travel account written by a native pretending to be an outsider. Modena's work was translated into French in 1674 by Richard Simon, the great biblical scholar, under the title Ceremonies et Coutumes qui s'observent aujourd'hui parmi les Juifs, Ceremonies and Customs Observed by Jews Today. To the second edition, issued in 1681, Simon added a long commentary entitled Comparaison des Ceremonies des Juifs et de la Discipline de l'Église, Comparison between Jewish Ceremonies and the Church Discipline. Long ago, 
Arnold Frankenepp, the author of The Rites of Passage, wrote an essay on the history of an ethnographic method in France between the 16th and the early 18th century, stressing the importance of Simon's comparison. La Crequinière's conformité must be analyzed in this context. My design, La Crequinière wrote as he introduced his, his book, was to travel over Asia, if I could have done it with any convenience, and to have observed in it exactly the smallest things, such as, for instance, the old customs of the common people, their festivals, their proverbs, their manner of building, of feeding, clothing themselves, and of cultivating the ground. For I am very certain that if any footsteps of antiquity are to be found there, they are to be met with among the simplest and plainest sort of people, among them those who dwell in deserts, and in general among those who are least civilized, who have neither ambition nor riches to invent new factions or to follow those which the great lords invent and consequently never alter from the factions of their ancestors." Unquote. Such a project, it was never quite fulfilled, helps to qualify Momigliano's argument on the emergence of ethnography from antiquarianism, as well as Van Kenep's reference to ethnography. In a perceptive note, apparently forgotten by later scholarship, Paul Alfandery, the French historian of religion, quoted the passage I, I just read, then called La Crétinière an intuitive forerunner of those who created comparative anthropology in the late 19th and 20th century. But what kind of comparisons did he make? As Alfandery noted, La Crétinière's methods were as distant as possible from the genealogical approach developed by Pierre-Daniel Huet, Bishop of Avranches. In his Demonstratio Evangelica 1679, Huet had argued that a long series of heroes of pagan myths were modeled on Moses, which he cited as proof of the impact Judaism had had all over the world, from Europe to Asia to America. La Crétinière, by contrast, never suggested that the similarities, the similarities between the customs of East Indians and Jews implied a shared heritage. He simply noted that he looked upon the Indians, quote, peculiar customs as precious remains of antiquity, unquote. Those customs ranged from circumcision to funerals, from their way of eating locusts, to the aversion they had for all sorts of wine, all topics traditionally treated by antiquarians. In the Oriental countries, La Crétinière explained, we find an infinite number of the remains of antiquity because generally all the Eastern people change much less than the Europeans. By these remains of antiquity, I do not mean the ruins and fragments of palaces, which are doubtless more frequent in Europe than in Asia. But I mean the customs of the people and the ways of living, which are in effect the remains of the most remote antiquity." Unquote. The assumptions behind this passage are far, are far from obvious. La Crétinière drew inspiration, I would argue, from a book which Claude Fleury, 
later to become famous as the author of Histoire Ecclesiastique, published in 1681, Le Mœurs des Israelites. This book, which Van Geneppe presented as an early example of ethnography, was recently dismissed as, quote, an idyllic picture of the life and customs of the Bible, unquote. A closer look does not support this judgment. The customs, mœurs, of the ancient Israelites, Fleury wrote, are so different from ours that we are shocked by them. Their bloody sacrifices are disgusting. We are easily persuaded that those, that those people were brutal and ignorant, and their customs more despicable than admirable." Unquote. But our prejudice disappears, Fleury went on, as soon as we compare the customs of the Israelites with those of the Romans, the Greeks, the Egyptians, and the other ancient populations we praise most highly." Unquote. This comparative framework paved the way to an idealized, but also strikingly secular approach to the Bible. I'm not pretending to give a panegyric, Fleury uh, wrote, but rather a simple narration, une relation très simple, Com comparable to those provided by travelers who have seen some very distant countries." Unquote. Leone Modena, the Venetian rabbi, claimed to be, quote, a simple, neutral narrator, semplice, neutrale relatore, unquote. Fleury may have echoed those words, either consciously or, or unconsciously, replacing Modena's uh, detached examination of contemporary Jews with a look at biblical Israelites. In any case, Fleury's parallel with travel accounts suggested how the Bible could be approached. Christians were invited, quote, to put aside the ideas which belong to our country and our time, looking at the Israelites according to the circumstances related to the times and places in which they lived, comparing them with the peoples closest to them, and thus entering their minds and their principles. Only people unfamiliar with history, Fleury went on, are unable to see that customs, mœurs, change according to times and places. We are completely different both from the Gauls and from Frenchmen who lived seven or eight hundred years ago, although we inhabit the same country. And in our century, quote, what is the relationship between our customs and the customs of the Turks, of the Indians, of the Chinese? If we take into account these two kinds of distance, we will not be surprised to find that the people who lived in Palestine 3,000 years ago had customs different from ours. On the contrary, we would be surprised by any practices that were similar, conform, unquote. Two kinds of distance, deux espèces d'éloignement. The past is a foreign country. A foreign country may preserve fragments from the past. La Crequinière did not miss this double lesson. The customs described in the Bible, shepherd kings, peasant kings, bloody sacrifices, even polygamy, should not shock us. As we learn from travel accounts, they are far from unique. This broad comparative approach to history and to the Bible anticipated the stage theory which was to become so influential in the 18th century. 
One of its manifold roots have been identified in some passages of Bossuet's Discours sur l'histoire universelle, published in 1681. A much more cogent example is provided by Le Meurs des Israelites, a book which came out in the same year and was written by one of Bossuet's protégés, Claude Fleury. Fleury's approach to the Bible was the outcome of a long reflection. Some early hints about his thinking may be drawn from a precious document, his notes on Homer, written in 1665, when he was 25. Fleury was still a lawyer at the Parliament of Paris, later he became a priest, when he reacted against the prevailing current that dismissed Homer's style as, quote, simple and coarse, simple et grossier, and the customs described in his poems as, quote, low and rustic, bas et rustique, unquote. Taking a contextual approach which might have been inspired by his legal education, Fleury argued that Homer had to accommodate to the customs and taste of his time. His comparisons followed the Oriental style, as we can see by looking at the Song of Songs and the other poetical books of the Bible. It is unclear, Fleury concluded, whether there are defects in Homer, since what we dislike in him arises from his quite alien customs and language, which we are unable to judge, since we always favor our own." Unquote. Fleury's defense of Homer was twofold. As a partisan of the ancients in the Carrelle des Anciens et des Modernes, he strongly opposed the idea of a single stylistic norm. Quote, to judge Herodotus on the basis of Titus Livius would be ridiculous. To despise the style of Moses because it, it's different from the style of Tacitus, who wrote 1,800 years after him, would be utterly insolent." Unquote. But this taste for stylistic variety paved the way to an open attitude towards different, distant customs. As we have seen, Fleury made the same point in his verse, Les Israelites. But the parallel with the Bible as an Oriental book was already announced in his youthful notes on Homer. Homer, a contemporary of Solomon, was born in Asia. The way in which the Greeks and the Trojans lived, as it is described in Homer's poems, is comparable to what we read in the Bible. Shepherd kings and peasant kings, quote, although the Greeks seem to have been less civilized, unquote. In Homer's poems, Fleury wrote, one finds, quote, innumerable details on the life of his times which are extremely helpful for the literal understanding of the Bible." Unquote. In revising his notes, Fleury made the same point once again more forcefully. Homer, quote, is one of the best interpreters of the Bible for those who seek only a literal meaning. Unquote. Fleury's notes on Homer were published for the first time posthumously in 1728. La Crequinière never read them, but in his conformité he developed a similar argument. A comparison with Indian customs, La Crequinière wrote, quote, may serve to illustrate many places of ancient authors, and particularly of Holy Scripture, these notices being absolutely necessary for giving a literal explication of certain passages to which the most learned interpreters have often given only an allegorical sense 
for want of being well informed of the Oriental customs." Unquote. This convergence between Fleury and La Cretinière can be explained by a common reference to Augustine, more precisely to an aspect of Augustine thinking that is not well known, his emphasis on the literal interpretation of the Bible rather than the allegorical. Reading his confessions and his on Christian education side by side, one sees that Augustine was able to overcome what he initially regarded as the absurdities of the Old Testament by relying upon two different strategies. The spiritual reading he had learned from Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, and the literal, contextual reading inspired by his early education centered on rhetoric. La Cretinière chose the latter, quote. We find in the scripture many places and also many terms which at first hearing appear to be harsh. But after we have a little frequented the Eastern nations, they grow familiar to us. Because among them, we may still see all these characters of antiquity which are observed in the Bible and generally in the books which speak of the Jews or any other ancient people." Unquote. The Jews, the Juifs. Was the reference to contemporaneous or to ancient Jews? In fact, to both. In his conclusion, La Cretinière reflected upon his comparison between Indians and Jews from an unexpected and highly significant point of view. Quote, the Roman, who under the reign of Titus, the emperor who conquered Jerusalem, had known them both, that is, the Jews and the Indians, would have described them after such manner as this, which follows. The people of Judea and those who dwell in the remotest countries of the Indies agree very well in the temper, the customs, and manner of governing. First, both of them lived in a hard bondage to which they were so much the more subject because they loved it and even adored their captivity. I mean that of the law, which was the hardest slavery. Both these people are so scrupulously addicted to antiquity that they cannot make any progress in the sciences, but are obliged to continue in the ignorance of their forefathers for everything that has the least appearance of novelty fights them. And it is a crime among them to improve the least in the world above what the ancients said." Unquote. To stress the opposition between Europe and the Orient and to articulate it in terms of novelty versus antiquity, progress in science versus stagnation does not sound very original. But these were not commonplaces in 1704. Montesquieu's Lettre Persane, for instance, appeared in 1721, although a work that had a great impact on Montesquieu, Marana's L'Esploratore Turco, later translated and expanded as the Turkish spy, had come out in 1684. The opposition between Europe and the Orient was emerging. It provides the framework for the analogy between Indians and Jews. The initial reference to the past Titus, the Roman emperor, and the inhabitants of Judea, quickly turns into a reference to the present. Both these people are La Cretinière's conformité, based on a detailed, on a detailed proto-ethnographic account of Indian rituals 
aimed also at the Jews. They were for him synonymous with antiquity and with the Orient. It is tempting to imagine that Lacretiniere's attitude towards Jews was inspired by an aggressive notion of modernity. But instead of using this catch-all word, I would rather recall the Querelle des Anciens et des Modernes, published by Charles Perrault in 1688 and its sequels. The difference between modernity and moderns, modern, which seems at first glance trivial, is the difference between the idiom of the observers and the idiom of the actors. La Cretiniere made clear that the most effective way out of antiquity had a name and part. Quote, the forefathers of the Jews looked upon their subjection to the yoke of the Romans as the greatest misery, which yet might have turned very much to their advantage. For the commerce they were thereby obliged to hold with the most polite and learned people in the world, having opened their eyes, set them at liberty for the future to think for themselves and help them to shake off the slavery of following blindly the sentiments of their fathers. And so indeed, some of them since that time have applied themselves to the history of other nations and the study of good arts, which before were known to them." Unquote. One of these unnamed Jewish historians was presumably Josephus. Lacretiniere's message was clear. Subordination to the Roman Empire made it possible for the Jews to liberate themselves from the bondage of the law. Indians, too, might free themselves through servitude, but at a much slower pace. Quote, the chains of the pagans continue still whole and entire, and it would be likewise happiness for them if some civilized nation could ever break them off and subject them to its empire, unquote. He added, if the Grecians had made a longer stay in the Indies, that certainly communicated to them the politeness of fine learning, unquote. But Alexander the Great was too impatient. Thus far, Lacretiniere had presented himself as an unconditional partisan of empire and European colonization. Then, with a sudden twist, he put forward a different argument, spoken by an antiquary, who was perhaps another side of himself. Quote, an antiquary, or an austere man, who talk quite, quite otherwise of the Jews and Indians, though he should not make any distinction between their religions, but look upon them both as standing upon the same foot." Unquote. He then wrote, quote, the Jews and the Indians have preserved, at least in a great measure, the simplicity of the primitive ages of the world, which they make appear in their food, their clothes, and their pleasures, wherein they always seek after that which is most natural, for they love that most, which most readily offers itself to their thoughts and most naturally gratifies their fancy. They practice very punctually all the rules which the religion they profess prescribes. And considering that no man can live independently, but is in a manner born for subjection, they love rather to serve their gods and submit blindly to their law than to be slaves of caprice and ambition as almost all other nations are. They neglect all sciences which are not necessary to life and look upon them only as such accomplishments which make men indeed more learned but oftentimes also 
more miserable and almost always more vain. They never trouble their heads about novelties, but follow the traffic or exercise themselves in the trade which they have learned from their fathers. And herein they differ very much from the people which we call polite and civilized, for they are never satisfied with what was left them by their forefathers, but are continually studying to invent something new and to put a force, if I may say so, upon nature. La force, pour ainsi dire, la nature. And to put a force, if I may say so, to nature. Lord Bacon's metaphor came spontaneously to La Tequinière's mind to articulate the distance between people committed to an endless search for progress and people who, having, quote, preserved, at least in a great measure, the simplicity of the primitive ages of the world, seek after that which is most natural, unquote. Progress is unnatural, since it is driven by caprice, ambition, vanity, and fashion, quote. Those who are least civilized have neither, have neither ambition nor riches to invent new factions or to follow those which the great lords invented and consequently never alter from the factions of their ancestors." La Crepiniere's criticism of progress, which anticipates Rousseau's Discours sur les sciences et les arts, 1750, should not be dismissed as a rhetorical move. One could compare it to a shadow cast by the Enlightenment. An endless search for novelty, as La Cretinière pointed out, generated scientific progress. He was probably echoing a passage from Pierre Daniel Huet's well-known work Sur l'origine des romans, on the origins of romances. Quote, the desire for learning is peculiar to man, and it distinguishes him from the other animals no less than does reason. This comes, I believe, from the overbroad scope of our mental faculties, which are too vast even to be satisfied by the objects of the present, so that the soul searches in the past and the future in truth and mendacity, in imaginary spaces and in the very impossibility of occupying and exercising them. The beasts fill the capacities of their souls with those objects that present themselves to their senses, never going any further. Hence, one never finds in them that restless hunger that incessantly troubles man's spirit, moving it to seek new knowledge, to balance, if it can, the object and the capacity, finding in this a delight like that of, a sating, of sating a voracious hunger or of drinking after a long thirst." Unquote. One can easily detect in this page an echo of Pascal's unforgettable voice. In fact, we are told by a modern editor of Huet that in the manuscript of Sur l'origine des romans, this passage bears along one margin a scrawled transcription of one of Pascal's pensées. But in this chain of transmission from Pascal to Huet to La Crequinière, the message changed. Pascal pointed out that man's endless search could be fulfilled only by an infinite, unchanging object, God. Huet, the skeptical bishop of Avranches, opposed man's endless inquiry to the quick satisfaction of the other animals. La Crequinière opposed the Europeans and their endless search to the easily satisfied Orientals, a telling sequence.
the Orientals and the Jews with them. Orientalizing the Jews was, I've already pointed out, one of the goals underlying Claude Fleury's approach to the Bible. First in his youthful notes on Homer, then in his Le Meurs des Israelites. La Crétinière's conformité followed the same path. The long-term impact of this move is still with us. In the introduction to Orientalism, Edward Said wrote, quote, by an almost inescapable logic, I found myself writing the history of a strange, secret share of Western antisemitism. That antisemitism and Orientalism resemble each other very closely is a historical, cultural, and political truth that needs only to be mentioned to an Arab-Palestinian for its irony to be perfectly understood." Unquote. We cannot miss Said's bitter irony, but many have missed what these words also imply. His book starts too late. His comment about antisemitism applies only partly to the 18th century, which Said dealt with in a cursory way. A man like La Crétinière, for instance, whose name is never mentioned in Said's book, exhibited no anti-Semitism at all. For him, Jews, a category devoid of racial connotations, could well enter the mainstream of civilization if, and only if, they abandoned their slavish obedience to the law. But La Crétinière was not committed to a Christian religion purged of Jewish elements. In fact, his, reference to, his references to Christianity are scanty. He referred obliquely to his own religious attitudes in an appendix entitled Reflections Upon Travels. Encountering, quote, many people of different religions, it grows so customary to hear people mention God and the worship that is due to him after so many different ways that it is, that it is very dangerous, lest by this means he falls into a kind of indifference about religion which borders upon deism. And upon this account, an able man of our time, that is, uh, Monsieur Labrière, has said that commonly a man brings home from his long voyages much less of religion than he had before." Unquote. La Crétinière's book was published in 1704. I've quoted from the anonymous translation, commonly ascribed to John Toland, which, as I already mentioned, came out in London in 1705. La Crétinière's detached comparative approach implied the distance from all historical religions not far from Poland's aggressive days. Possibly elated by the immediate translation of his book, La Crétinière prepared a second edition, much enlarged. The revised manuscript was approved by the censor. On April 10, 1706, the king granted a printing privilege. But the enlarged edition, which still exists in manuscript form, was never published. The explanation may lie in a mass of leaflets scribbled in La Crétinière's hand, all related to a very different literary project, perhaps a roman à clé. These notes are resembled in three volumes, originally preserved at the Archive de la Bastille, today owned by the Bibliothèque de l'Arsenal. Apparently, La Crétinière had been...